believe his promises, to trust what he says, and to step out in faith. That's what we're seeing through Hebrews chapter 11 as we look at these figures of faith. Week in and week out, we're seeing that they trusted God. And so they embraced the journey of life with all of the ups and downs. Can any of you testify to the fact that the journey of life has ups and downs? Yes? Yes? Okay. All of us? Anyone willing to put their hand up and say life is always smooth, no chaos, no ups and downs? No? Oh, one. All right. I think that was facetious. Um, We are all in this together. Authentic faith is believing God as we see in Hebrews chapter 11, as we see in all the figures or the portraits of faith given us in Hebrews 11. They're willing to step out believing who God is and embrace the journey that God calls them on. And also we see that, that they leave a legacy, a worthwhile legacy of people who would follow after them. That's kind of what we're seeing over and over again here in Hebrews chapter 11. And so as we continue to move through this today, I want to ask you to stand as I read Hebrews chapter 11 verses 20 through 22. And today we're looking at the, they're often called the patriarchs of the faith. Abraham, uh, we talked about Abraham last week. This week we're transitioning to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham's son, grandson, and great-grandson. So Hebrews chapter 11 verse 20 through 23. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings upon Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. God, these are three short verses that give a summary of a long section, a long passage in the Old Testament. As we look at it this morning, as we look at these portraits from Jacob, from Joseph, from Isaac, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a greater affection for you. I pray that you would help us to see more clearly your faithfulness, your goodness, your ability to work out in and through your people, your desires. God, I pray that you would help us to believe you Not merely to believe in you, not to have an intellectual assent to who you are, but to trust you and to step out into the journey of faith, following you in all of life's life's ups and downs and passing on a worthwhile legacy. We ask that you would do this in us this morning, Jesus. Amen. You may have a seat. So this morning we are looking at Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham, last week it was Abraham and Sarah, so the the part in Hebrews that comes before this, we looked at Abraham and Sarah, and now Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham and Sarah's son, grandson, and great-grandson. And really what we see in their life is what that poem that we were supposed to hear summarize faith as. It's not primarily believing in God, it's believing God. There's a big difference. And so this morning we're going to take a snapshot look at these three portraits the portraits of Isaac, the portrait of Jacob, and the portrait of Joseph. And we're going to see how their faith or how their belief in God enabled them to embrace the challenging journey of life and to pass on a worthwhile legacy. As we look at the biblical examples of faith of men who have gone before us, I thought it would be kind of a, a unique and helpful experience to have us have men from our own, some leaders, some, some leaders in our own church kind of give to us these examples. So I've actually asked, we're going to do something a little different this morning. 
I think it's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be great. We're going to have Matt share with us, Matt, our pastoral resident, he's going to share with us the portrait of Isaac. Then we're going to have Garth share with us the portrait of Jacob. And then we're going to have Seth share with us the portrait of Joseph. So I think as we look at biblical examples of faith, I thought, okay, who are a couple men in our church that are an example of faith to me? As we've been seeing in the scriptures, we're called to imitate those who have gone before us, those who are around us, to imitate their life and their faith. And so we're going to see three portraits this morning from the scriptures, Hebrews 11, 20 through 22. That's kind of the basis for it. And we'll refer back to the Old Testament to see their stories in context. And I'm going to have three men in our church who help lead our church, who I respect, share with us because they're examples for us as well. Well, good morning. Um, as Andrew said, it's my role to walk us through a little bit um, about Isaac's life. But I want to say for the record, despite the fact that as we start talking about Isaac's life, um, it is not the most thrilling. It's actually a little bit depressing. Um, it's not the most uh, exciting or adventurous. He is uh, Jacob's father and Joseph's grandfather. So if it wasn't for my guy, their dudes wouldn't be here. So um, I, I just want to say that for the record and put it out there. But uh, in all seriousness, verse 20 um, is the one that I'm going to be focusing on, which says this, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. That's kind of like a weird statement. He invoked future blessings. So what does that mean? And we've been seeing this, this phrase, by faith, all the way through Hebrews chapter 11, and hopefully we have kind of a grasp on it, but how does it mean that he invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau by faith? And so for us to answer that question, uh, I'm, we're going to talk about kind of the big picture, the 30,000-foot view of Isaac's life, and then we'll come back to this. So I'm going to paraphrase a little bit of Isaac's life for you, and then we're going to come back. If you want to look at it, uh, specifically, it's in Genesis chapters 21 through 27. Uh, so last week, Andrew talked about Abraham. And Abraham, if you know uh, the story of God's people starting in the Old Testament, he is the father of the Jewish people. And to put simply, Isaac is his son. But he is not uh, just any son. He is the son that God promised to Abraham in his old age. For years and years, as Andrew said last week, uh, Sarah and Abraham were unable to have a child. And just as it seemed like they were too old, that all hope was lost, God came and made a promise to Abraham that he would have a son. And through a miracle, they eventually conceived and they had this little boy, Isaac, the son of the promise. Eventually, once Isaac is a little bit older, we run into the situation where God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on an altar. He does it as a sign that Abraham, he, he tries to test Abraham to see if his faith is strong, strong enough, his, his devotion to God is greater than the thing that he cares about most, his son Isaac. So you can imagine what a scarring experience that w was for Isaac. Just think about the whole dynamic going on, right? You're seeing your dad trying to kill you. You're also seeing your dad have this uh, abiding faith in who God is, that he's willing to do anything. And then just as it seems like Isaac is about to be slaughtered, there's a ram that's caught in the thicket, and Isaac is able to observe that ram being sacrificed instead of himself. He's seeing God personally saving him. 
So as you can imagine, that's a pretty extreme situation and all of that must have kind of created this dissonance and complexity for the way that Isaac uh, was brought up and how he viewed his father and how he viewed God. Nonetheless, Isaac does grow up and we read about a situation right after his mother dies. After all, she was old when he was uh, conceived and born already. So she passes away and they send one of their servants to get Isaac a wife. And her name's Rebecca and she is a woman from his own people And they never even saw one another until the time that she was to come and become his wife. Then finally, Isaac and Rebekah, you start to see their lives actually reflecting a lot of Abraham and Sarah's life. And they have trouble conceiving themselves, but eventually they do. And they have two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And between the two of them, parenting is anything but a breeze, we read about a situation where Esau tries to sell his birthright to his brother Jacob because he's hungry. He's not valuing his own birthright, and he's willing to sell it over some food. Then Esau eventually goes on to marry a foreign woman, which in that context created quite a bit of tension for Rebekah. So not only are we seeing uh, Isaac experiencing stress in his youth, but we're seeing him experiencing it in his parenting as well. And we go on to read about how he has quite the predicament as he gets older. To top it off... We get to Genesis 27, and, and we see Jacob, who is the second-born son out of the twins. He tricks Isaac, who is old at this time, and Isaac can barely see. He's pretty much blind at this point. Jacob tricks Isaac into giving him the first-born blessing that was meant for Esau. So when it comes to family drama and, and troubled situations, it doesn't get much crazier than Isaac's life. But there's this one point in Genesis 26 I want to call our attention to. God swears an oath to Isaac in Genesis 26 that is oddly similar to the one that he swore to his father, Abraham. He tells him that he is going to multiply his offspring, that he's essentially going to grow his family, and that he's going to give him all of the land in the surrounding area. God blesses Isaac in the much as, just like Andrew talked about last week, what seems to be an out-of-control situation, and God shows himself in that to be faithful. And it's the God of this promise that Isaac places his faith in. So that's kind of the gist of the events and some of the events in Isaac's life. And so let's come back to our question now with verse 11, uh, verse 20, chapter 11, verse 20 of Hebrews. What does it mean when our text in Hebrews says, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau? I mean, we know that Isaac, because he was tricked, actually gave Jacob the blessing that he wanted to give to Esau, and as a result, had to give Esau a blessing he would have preferred not to. So we know this text is talking about those blessings, but clearly that situation wasn't so great. So what is it getting at? So so here's what I believe the text is getting at this morning. Hebrews 11.1 tells us, it defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. And the key word for Isaac, and for us this morning, looking at Isaac's faith and coming into his story, is the word hope. It is the assurance of things hoped for. Isaac, despite everything he experienced, when it was all said and done, he wasn't willing to let go of. He wanted to cling to the God who made him this promise that he was going to be blessed to be a blessing. He trusted God with the future that he couldn't see. And I know that that's fairly obvious for some of us this morning, 
But I want to challenge you to ask yourself if you really believe that you have a glorious future in light of who Christ is and what he has done. If you're anything like me, depending on the situation, you, you, that belief wavers. Uh, you tend to be a fairly maybe optimistic person, but anytime there is pain or there is uncomfortability, that belief wavers. You are, you are willing to let God fall by the wayside. You're willing to question whether he really loves you or is truly good. But that isn't what we see Isaac doing. If you're like me, then in those circumstances of uncomfortability, in those circumstances that you'd prefer not to go through those seasons, you get quite negative for your immediate circumstances. But brothers and sisters, 1 Peter chapter 3, it says something really interesting. Peter commands us to be prepared to give a reason, a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Do you see how Peter is assuming that Christians, people that follow Christ and love him, have an inherent hope? So I want to encourage you this morning to imitate Isaac's faith by realizing that despite your intentions, good or bad, despite the intentions of others, good or bad, or the circumstances that you are experiencing are the ones that you have not yet experienced. Realize that they are all temporary and they will one day be your past. And there is only, if you are in Christ, if you know Jesus, there is only one day that will not be your past ever. And it's the day that you spend eternity with God. So let's be challenged this morning to live our lives with the certainty that comes from that glorious future that Christ has purchased for us and not with the uncertainty of our day-to-day struggles. I'm, I'm tired of hearing people say, people that follow God say, it's only gonna get worse. This is true that, that things may get increasingly worse, may get increasingly more difficult for Christians, but God is Lord, Christ is Lord, and there will be one day where everything is made new, and let's find our joy and our hope in spite of that. So friends, that's how Isaac's faith passed on the baton to the next generation, because despite the fact that he was deceived, and he didn't even know who he was giving those blessings to, he was so blind. Talk about you know, walking by faith and not by sight. He wanted to follow through on what he believed God was calling him to, while hoping in that God. So with that being said, we're going to consider now Jacob, the inheritor of Isaac's firstborn blood. And so it was just a little bit surprising to me that uh, we find that Isaac's son, Jacob, ends up being a deceiver. Let me just walk through what it says in Genesis chapter 25, verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb, Rebecca's womb. Uh, The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out, and his hand was holding Esau's heel. He was the twin, and he was holding on to his brother who had just been born. He was holding on, grasping, if you will, uh, and his name was called Jacob. Jacob, one of the names besides deceiver, is the one who grasps. And so we're going to see some things that happen about Jacob's life where he's actually grasping. Matt alluded to the fact that he grasped his brother's birthright. He stole his brother's birthright. He also grasped and stole in some just kind of very odd ways his inheritance. He tricked his brother. So it's an interesting deal that this guy shows up as a superstar in God's Hall of Fame. And yet I'm very encouraged by that because I don't know why it is, but so often I find myself 
deceiving someone. It would have been just as easy to tell the truth, but somehow what comes out of my, my mouth is some posturing or some positioning. And so a guy who's in God's hall of fame and me are a lot alike. Jacob came from a remarkably dysfunctional family, um, alluded to just a little bit. Abraham, um, when uh, uh, coming up against a, a, a king, didn't want the king to kill him, and so instead of telling the king that his wife was his wife, thinking that the king might kill him, he says to the king, this is my sister, treat her well. The king finds this out and says, why did you deceive me? I just about took her unto myself. I just about took this woman unto myself. Why did you deceive me? Abraham was a deceiver. Isaac, in a similar situation, deceived a king again, the same king again. A liar. Do you ever find yourself lying for no reason whatsoever? Or lying because you think if you take things into your own hands, they will turn out better? In essence, we sing about trusting God. But often the reality of our lives is that we don't trust God nearly as much as we'd like. Their mom, Jacob's mom, uh, recognizing that her husband Isaac is near death, hears a conversation between Esau, the older brother, the twin brother, and, uh, and his dad. And the dad says, I want to give you a blessing. Go out, find a great meal for me, uh, come back, prepare it, let's eat, and then I want to give you the family blessing. Matt alluded to that. Mom hears this story and says, I don't want the blessing to go to Esau. I want the blessing to go to my favorite son. I want the blessing to go to Jacob. And so she helps Jacob deceive her, his dad and say, you know what? I'm going to get that blessing. And in fact, that's what happened. The blessing is given to the secondary son. Esau finds this out and he says, even though you've stolen away this, I will come after you. I will kill you. You are dead meat. The mom says, run away, run away to my uncle, to your brother, to my brother's house, to your uncle Laban's house. Sure enough, he runs away, Jacob runs away to his uncle Laban's house. He gets attracted to Laban's daughter, beautiful uh, Rachel, and uh, he says, I want to marry Rachel. And Laban says, tell you what, you work for me for seven years and you can have Rachel. So what's he do? He works for uh, Laban for seven years and the wedding comes, guess what? He doesn't get Rachel, he gets Rachel's sister, Leah. I don't know how, this is odd in the Bible. How in the world did you wake up the next morning and say, I got the wrong gal? You know? <laughs> but I'm not making it up. It's in the Word of God. You ought to read it. Genesis 25 through 50 is fascinating reading. He says, I'll work another seven years for Rachel, and sure enough, he does. In fact, he ends up working for the better part of 21 years. And in that process, Jacob becomes very, very wealthy. But he still has this deceptive nature about him. And finally, he leaves his father-in-law in a deceptive manner. Um, he senses that God has called him on. So he leaves his father-in-law, and he's about to face his brother that he hasn't seen in 20 years. He's about to see his brother. The last time his brother saw him, he said, I'm going to kill you. I'm coming after you. So what does Jacob do? Jacob sends all of his um, servants, all of his wealth, even his wives, he sends them in front of uh, him to go meet Laban. He's a coward for all practical purposes. That's where I want to pick it up today. 
By the way, just, just out of foolishness, why would you sell your birthright for a cup of soup? Man, I want to challenge you in particular. Why would you sell away your reputation? Why would you sell away your family? Why would you sell away everything for just a fleeting moment of foolishness? Genesis chapter 32, verse 22 says this. He'd sent everything away, and he says this. That same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and 11 children, and crossed the fjord of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. Jacob was left alone. How often do you get left alone with God? How often do you put yourself in a position where you're left alone with God? And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go. Jacob grabbing on, like he grabbed onto the, to the heel of his brother, like he grabbed onto the birthright, like he grabbed onto the blessing. He says to God himself, let me go. He says, I will not let you go. Uh, and, uh, and he ultimately says, the, the person he's wrestling with says, what's your name? 20 years later, his dad says to him, what's your name? And he says, Jacob says, my name is Esau. He lied. Now, 20 years later, in maturation with a broken hip, what's your name? And he says, my name is Jacob. My name is Deceiver. I'm tired of playing the game. I want to be exactly who I am, God. I need you. The word goes on to say, you will no longer be called Jacob. I will call you Israel. I will give you a new name. I will give you a new identity. I will give you a new destiny. My story is such that uh, fear and anxiousness, despair and discouragement visit me regularly. I cannot overcome those things apart from the grace of God. When I sing those songs, I cannot walk victoriously on my own. I have to flood my life with the truth of God's word. I have to surround myself with the prayers of God's faithful people. And I have to, at some level, call it out. I am Jacob. I am a deceiver. I'd encourage you... It may be immorality, it may be fear, it may be anxiousness, it may be a divorce, history of divorce in your family's lives. It may be a family mess, it may be finances. You may think about taking your own life. Don't do this life alone. Don't walk through life without reading the truths of God's word. Don't miss out on the blessing that God has for you of being moving from old nature to new nature of being alone with God and letting God do the transformation work. He'll do that. After the service today, uh, the three of us and Andrew will be up front, and there may be something that you just need to say, I am Jacob. I just need to confess that. I just need to flush that out and let some people pray with me. We want to encourage you to do that. There you go. Well, thanks, Garth. 
Uh, that was great. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I have Joseph looking at Hebrews 11, verse 22. And when Andrew asked me about this idea, I think he asked me first. And I said, yeah, I guess I'll do it if you let me do Joseph, because that should be an easy one, because there's a lot in there. Um, I didn't think about the fact that I would have a time limit and have to fit his life into a certain amount of time so we're not talking through lunch. And I also didn't think about having to follow Matt or Garth. Um, so, here goes. Um, let's look at Joseph. In this verse 1122, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave them instructions concerning his bones. So I think to unpack the weight of what the author is trying to get at here, we really need to look at the arc of Joseph's life. Uh, so what he's referring to is the very end of the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verses 24 through 26. Joseph is dying, and he says, please take my bones out of Egypt when you leave the land. Um, but Joseph's life is incredibly interesting. And the reason that it's going to be tough to fit it into a short amount of time is because so much happens in his life. It's very exciting. Um, but for me, when I look at Joseph, when I consider him, I find him sometimes to be a little bit unrelatable, a little bit unapproachable, because you have this person who's gone through all of these struggles and in some way represents what we might think would be the ideal Christian where you see, well, here's a challenge, and he does well. Well, here's another challenge, and he does well. And he's blessed, and he's blessed, and he's blessed, and he's challenged, and he's challenged, and he's challenged. And there's other characters, like Jacob, like Abraham, like Moses and Elijah, who you can see very clearly a place where they're, they're human. They have human weakness. They have human responses to their situation that is kind of like, oh, I, I can relate to that. In that situation, I might do something similar. Where for Joseph, as we go through, we'll see he, he had a great response in a lot of these different situations. And his story starts in uh, chapter 37 uh, with Jacob um, repeating a family issue uh, and picking a favorite child. So he is Jacob's favorite son out of his 12 sons. And I think it's very interesting when you look in the Old Testament and you see how often that happens, that a family willingly steps into that situation and tears itself apart by playing favorites. Um, but how often then God takes that issue, that situation, that sin, and works it for good in that family's life. And so Joseph gets his Technicolor dream coat, and that starts a lot of the dissension and the issues in his life. So his brothers, because he's got that coat, because his father has picked him, start to resent him, and they start to hate him. And so he compounds his issue by telling his entire family, hey, I had a dream that I'm going to be king over you. I had a dream that uh, the sun and the moon, which are my mom and dad, and 11 stars, which are you guys, are all going to bow down to me, and other dreams that supported that same thought. And so their resent and their hatred grows to this point where they want to kill him. And so after some dissension in the ranks, uh, what they ultimately do is they sell him into slavery in Egypt. So he's taken out of his land, out of his family, and he goes to the house of Potiphar, who is a commander in Pharaoh's army. And while he's there as a slave, uh, we start to see, and, and we start to have kind of this area where we have a hard time relating to him, or I have a hard time relating to him because he is acting wisely, 
responsibly and competently in such a way that as a slave, he is elevated to the highest position in the house. He's responsible for everything. He is essentially, in Potiphar's family, a fiduciary. And if you want to hear more about that, I can talk about that all day too, but it's kind of boring. Um, but, so he's responsible for the entire household and he's doing well and the Lord blesses him. And then he's confronted with a situation of temptation. And he responds admirably in a way that we would want to evoke if we are challenged with that same temptation. But because of that, he is accused of assault falsely and thrown into prison. So now he's in Pharaoh's prison. And he continues to be responsible. He continues to be wise. He continues to be competent. And he's set in charge of that whole prison. And so he gets to know the other prisoners that he's with. And he's showing them that he's a trustworthy person. And so these two individuals, Pharaoh's old cupbearer and his old baker, come to him and say, Hey, Joseph, we just had these dreams. And we wanted to see if you could give us an idea of what they mean. Uh, so he does, and he accurately tells them exactly what's going to happen. The cupbearer is going to be freed and restored to his position, and the baker is going to be hanged, and it happens the next day. And so as the cupbearer is leaving, he's, Joseph says, Hey, please, when you go back, remember me. Help me get out of here. I don't want to be in prison anymore. cupbearer says, Sure, why not? I'll, I'll remember you when I get out. Great. And promptly forgets. And so then Joseph is in prison for two more years until Pharaoh has another dream. And you see this theme of dreams, and the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph and what he did for him and says, oh yeah, that guy knows what he's talking about. He can probably answer this, this question that Pharaoh has because Pharaoh's searching. He's terrified of this dream. He doesn't know what it means, and so he brings in Joseph to tell him what it means. And so he tells him the dream. Joseph correctly interprets it. He says, Pharaoh, God is showing you what's going to happen. He's giving you multiple dreams to tell you that it is certain. And what's going to happen is in the next seven years, we are going to have a lot of plenty in this land. We are going to be satisfied with what we have, and everyone will be happy. And those seven years are going to follow, be followed by seven years that are so bad, we won't be able to remember how good we have it. And so one thing about Joseph that I think is interesting is you can really see his boldness and his confidence come through. He doesn't lack for that at all in his whole story. Uh, because the next thing he does is he tells Pharaoh, who for all intents and purposes is the leader of the civilized world in that area, here's the job description. Here's how you, as the ruler, should fix this problem. So set up somebody to be in charge of managing our produce, what we have over the next seven years, so we can come through that and be okay on the other side. Uh, just boldly tells him what he has to do. And God blesses that as well. And Pharaoh listens to him. So now we see Joseph has come from being a slave to being a prisoner to being the second most powerful man in the land of Egypt. And everything comes to bear as he has said. It goes exactly as he said. And so then... This famine is impacting the land. He is managing the affairs of Egypt well, and people are coming to Egypt to live, to survive, to be saved. And it is the same way with his family. They are struggling. They come to Egypt for food. He tests them to see how they've grown, to see how they've changed since they wanted to kill him and throw him in prison. And then he receives them, he forgives them, and he confirms, yes, what you wanted to do to me, you intended for evil, but God meant it for good and for your salvation. 
And so when you look at that story, you see all of these big challenges, this windy path that Joseph takes until the end goal. And for me, it's one of those things, it's hard for me to say, well, how am I like Joseph or how can I be like Joseph? Because I think I would struggle. But then if you step back and you look at the beginning and you kind of think, where did Joseph's faith come from? How was he able to act the way that he did? Joseph received, like us, a promise from God. God told Joseph exactly where he would end up. He gave him those dreams, which may have been more of a private conversation that he shouldn't have shared with his brothers, but he told him exactly where he was going to go. You are going to be ruler of your family. And so he had that promise from God that he was able to cling to so that when he's a slave, he knows this is not where I end. When he's a prisoner, he knows this is not where I'm going to be when I'm done. And he, he clings to that, and it informs his decisions. And because he's clinging to that, something interesting that you see scattered through this account is that God is acting through him. God is working through him, telling him what to say, showing him what to do. God blesses him. God blesses everything that he does and gives him that success. And I think it's similar for us. We have that promise. We know where we will end up if we trust in Jesus as our Savior. We know that he's coming back. We know that it will be perfect. So then back to verse 22. All those things that happened in Joseph's life, why did the writer of Hebrews decide to use this example? Why didn't he talk about the dreams that he interpreted or saving his family in Egypt? He talked about what he said when he died. I think that's interesting as well because the promise that Joseph clings to until he gets to Egypt is one that God gave him personally. He said, this is what is going to happen to you. But in this section, the writer chooses to look at the promise that Joseph clings to that he didn't hear, that he didn't get directly from God. And that promise was to his family, to his grandfather, that he's going to give him this land. And so God has proven himself faithful in his life, and he knows if he can prove himself faithful in the promise that he gave to me directly, I think he will prove himself faithful in the promise that he gave to my ancestors. And so I know that Egypt is not where we are going to stay. God is going to take us out of Egypt. And so when he does that, please take me with you because I want to be in God's place. And so how does that tie into what we're looking at? Well, I think many of us have not had a direct verbal promise from God that we heard or that we saw what was going to happen in our lives. But we do have this promise that we've heard passed down from our ancestors. We have the big picture, the end story that someone else heard, but that God is asking us to put our faith in, not to believe in God, but to believe God. And so how do we grow our faith? We dig deeper into his word, into the things that he said, so that we can believe him. And that's what I have on Joseph. Thanks, guys. Hopefully now you know why I wanted them to do that, not myself. That was really powerful. As we, as we wrap it up here, look at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. At the end of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 and 40. And all these, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph... 
though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Like we heard, they were all given promises from God about the future, and they trusted those promises. And their trust in God and in those promises allowed them to go through life step by step with all of, all of life's ups and downs. It allowed them to embrace the journey that God led them on and to pass the faith on to the next generation. Though they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that's for us sitting here today. He had promised Jesus the Christ that apart from us, they, those Old Testament figures that we're looking at, should not be made perfect. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they're a cloud of witnesses for us to learn from about how God works and what God does. This is a cloud of witnesses. Matt, Garth, Seth, witnesses that we are to look to to imitate their faith. Those sitting around you who are in Christ, cloud of witnesses testifying to God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us lay beside our dysfunctional family. Let us lay beside our participation in that dysfunction. Let us lay aside our deceptive ways or own up to it and admit it. Let us lay aside our inability to be like Joseph because that guy was amazing. His faith produced something in him that, man, I, I, I wish my faith would produce something. Let us lay aside our shortcomings, our downfall, our sin, our missing the mark and cling so closely that clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we run that race? By looking to the cloud of witnesses and ultimately, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the promised one, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Any of you feel shame for not being able to add up? To not being able to Throw aside your sin and your weight for not being able to run with perfect endurance the race of life. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who, despising the shame, he experienced more shame than we ever will. He felt all of the weight, all of the burden of our sin, which clings so closely to us, placed upon him, Jesus the Christ, the promised one, the one who Isaac Jacob and Joseph never got to see and experience, but now we do. Look to him, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, victorious over sin and death and the grave. He's the ultimate example that we look to. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph point us towards him. They give, give us an example of what it looks like to have faith in the promises of God. And Jesus is now the promise that we cling to, that we hold on to. That's the truth that we want to respond to now. And so I'm going to invite the worship team back up and they're going to lead us in a time of response where we'll take communion. We have two stations here in the front and one in the back and I invite you to come down the center aisles and return the outer aisles. And if your faith is in God, if you've placed your trust in Jesus the Christ, this is for you. This is how we remember who Jesus is and what he's done. This is the good news that Jesus has taken our sin upon himself. He despised the shame that we are inclined to experience. 
He is now seating victoriously at the right hand of God the Father, and we have new life. We can own up to having a deceptive nature because God has renamed us and made us new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. We thank you for the stories of old, the, the people of faith from back in the day, for the way that we see Jacob, Joseph, and Isaac transformed by you and used by you and clinging to your promises and stepping out in faith, trusting you. God, I pray that all of us gathered together here in this room today would grow in our trust of you, that we would step out that we would follow the journey that you lead us on and that when life's ups and downs come, as we saw with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, that we would cling to the promises of God, which, as we're told in the New Testament, are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. It is finished. You have won. We are set free. So God, I pray that now that as we remember who Jesus is and what he's done that we would experience and feel and savor the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Freedom from sin, freedom from bondage, freedom from deception, freedom from guilt, freedom from fear, freedom from shame. May you wash all that away as we trust in you, Jesus. We pray these things in your strong, precious, and effective name. Jesus the Christ. Amen.